But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I've endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and impostors will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be, dece will themselves be deceived. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know, you know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the holy scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes, from, comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and what makes us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. You may be seated. pastor here and uh, glad that we get to spend some time together and you decided to come to church. We're in uh, a series of messages we're calling How Can I Be Sure? Uh, we're doing it in four parts, but we're, we're just talking about some of the questions about Christianity or the um, uh, doubts people have about Christianity. You know, how do you know if something's true? Who is Jesus? Uh, next week, we're going to specifically try to answer the four kind of most popular common critiques of Christianity, uh, which are science, sex, slavery, and suffering. Like, I don't know if I can be a, Christ a Christian because, you know, what about science? What about sex? What about slavery? What about suffering? Uh, we're going to talk about those. Uh, but today we're continuing by answering the question, what is the Bible? What is uh, the Bible? And I've shared this quote with you every week for this series from George McDonald, but it's always a great starting point for whatever questions we want to talk about. This is what George McDonald said, talking about doubt. He said, doubts are the messengers of the living one to the honest. They are the first knock at our door of things that are not yet, but have to be understood. And, and the reason this is so beautiful and the reason we share this each week is because what he's saying is that our doubts are usually an invitation. The first step on a journey that God is leading us on to, bringing us, to, to bring us to even more faith in the truth. And so we don't have to be scared about questions or uncertainty, or we don't have to be embarrassed, even though, you know, when, you're, when your beliefs are connected to your social circle, and then you start wondering about your beliefs, and you start fearing your social connections, and all of those things can feel scary or embarrassing, but we don't have to be scared or embarrassed about our questions or our doubt. If we'll keep searching, if we'll keep uh, looking for the truth and asking God to help us and lead us to the truth, we will find it. And really what's happening, even though it feels scary, is that God is inviting us on a journey that will lead us to an even more personal faith and a personal relationship with Jesus. And so today, as we talk about the Bible, I want you to know if you have questions about the Bible, that's okay. That's okay. I have questions about the Bible. No one is asking you to blindly follow Christianity. No one is asking you to just have faith in faith. There will be faith involved. Part of Christianity requires faith, but that doesn't mean that you can't also find a lot of the answers that you're looking for. You won't find every answer you're looking for. 
One of the, the problems that I see and that I have noticed in talking to people and reading about people you know, losing their faith or deconstructing or things like that is that so often we ask the questions that we have and then assume that there's no answers because it wasn't the first result on Google or because somebody hasn't you know, texted us about it. We assume there must not be an answer, but that's not true, that, that there are answers for almost every question that you have. Now, you may not like the answer. But there, is, uh, there are answers, and so it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to wonder, but we don't want to stop there. We want to continue searching and asking God to lead us to the truth. And so we want to do that about the Bible today, and we're going to do this in three parts, okay? This message is in three parts. I just want to give you a heads up. I told the first service this. This will be the most technical of all the messages, okay? Which, you know, makes me want to do an evil laugh because I love that anyway, but... I know that uh, of, of the messages, this is going to be the most technical. And I'm going to give you a lot of information today. I just want you to know that. And the reason I'm doing it is because if I was in your shoes, if I showed up to church and a, a speaker got up and said, hey, today we're going to talk about, you know, what is the Bible? Why do we believe the Bible? How can we trust the Bible? But then only talked kind of metaphorically or philosophically and didn't actually answer the question then I would leave very disappointed, okay? And so I don't want to do that today. I want to try to answer the questions for you. And so I'm going to give you a lot of information. Uh, I'm going to talk to your head for a while today. And then by the end, hopefully, we're going to talk to uh, the heart as well. But we're going to do this in three ways, three questions. We're going to answer, what is the Bible? And then we're going to answer, how did we get the Bible? And then we're going to answer, why do we believe the Bible? Okay, three questions we're going to answer today. What is the Bible? The second question is, how did we get the Bible? And then the third question is, why do we believe the Bible? But before we get into the message, I want to say something right up front that may come across a little snarky. And if it's a little too snarky, my wife will correct me after the sermon, okay? So you'll be okay there. Um, I'm not trying to be sarcastic. I'm not trying to talk down to anybody. But I do think it's a really important starting point. And, and here's the comment. You ready? Here's the, here's the preface. Many people who doubt the Bible don't read the Bible. That's our starting point right there, okay? And again, I'm not trying to be like snarky. I just, I think we have to start there that many people who doubt the Bible don't read the Bible. And that may be you. I may be talking about you today. Many people who doubt the Bible don't read the Bible. A survey done in 2021 found that 11% of Americans read the Bible daily and that the, the stats vary for each demographic. But what they found was that millennials are the most likely generation to have never read the Bible, whereas the most frequent readers of the Bible were those over the age of 70. So that's concerning. <laughs> this trend, this gap that is developing, that there is a, there's a generation of people who were either taught how to read the Bible or were told to read the Bible because it's important or uh, had an experience with the Bible that continues to this day. And there's a growing gap then to uh, new generations of people who have never read it or who uh, read it read it sparingly, okay? And I don't bring that up to throw shade at anybody who doesn't read the Bible. I bring it up because so many of the arguments against the Bible don't have anything to do with accuracy or historical proof. Most people's critiques of the Bible are because, is because they don't like what it says, or more specifically, they don't like what they've been told it says. Because they haven't read it. They haven't read it. People don't doubt the Bible because the Dead Sea Scrolls don't have enough erosion in the papyrus. 
okay? Like nobody's ever come to me and is like, Jason, I gotta be honest with you, I struggle to believe the Bible because there's only like 8% erosion in the papyrus on those scrolls they found over there. No one's ever said that. That would be amazing though, if they did. That person would be my friend. But um, they doubt it because it feels too old fashioned or it feels confusing. The objections, most, let me say this, most objections of the Bible are more about inconvenience than inaccuracy. But that, that doesn't mean there aren't the, the legitimate questions that need to be answered. And we're going to answer those. But I want to just start at this point and, and say, is the reason, if you are here and you are doubting the legitimacy of the Bible, is the reason that you're doubting it because you have found some proof that it is not trustworthy? Or could it be more that if it's not true, then it would be much more convenient for what it is that you're trying to do or how you're trying to live your life or what you want to be true of the world. See, I've found for myself, and I can't speak for you, but I've found for myself that most of the doubts and questions I have come because I have come face to face with a truth of God that requires response from me. But if I could somehow discredit it or somehow you know, push it away, then, it, then I won't have to respond to it and I won't have to make a choice. And so I want to just start at that point today and say, if you are here and you're doubting the Bible or the legitimacy of the Bible, is it because you've read it? Is it because you've studied it? Is it because you have found uh, legitimate historical uh, inaccuracy and proof? Or is it because you don't like what you've been told that it says? And it feels, feels wrong, okay? So there are legitimate questions that need to be answered and we're going to do that today um, after we kind of deal with that first part. And here are just a couple of questions that I jotted down. There are more than this, but questions that have been asked of me or that I have had myself. How can a book written so long ago still matter, be applicable? Um, how do we know that it's not made up? How do we know that God still wants us to live by the commands he gave people in another century or custom? What about the rules that seem unfair to my friends or who, who are good people, but they're struggling? What about the books of the Bible that were left out? What about the different versions? I get that question probably more than any. And, uh, you know, you have a, a grandmother or, you know, who says there's only one version. And your pastor, they say your pastor never uses it, you know, and that's okay. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. They're all great questions. Um, I'm not going to be able to answer all of them, but... But the most important thing to know is that God is not bothered by your questions. Great questions lead to, to great faith. So we want to keep asking. We want to keep investigating. So we're going to answer these three questions. Let's start with the first question. The first question is, what is the Bible? What is the Bible? And like last week, let me just start by telling you what the Bible is not. Because that's, that's a good way to start. Uh, the Bible is not a rule book. The Bible is not a rule book. It has guidelines for life in it but it's not an employee handbook, right? Um, the Bible's not a secret code. We don't have to read between the lines to find a magic formula that tells us what's gonna happen next Thursday. We can just read the words on the page and there's power enough in, in that. The Bible is not a book of life hacks or techniques 
And there is so much wisdom in the Bible that will help you in your daily life or leadership or business, but the Bible is not primarily about productivity or efficiency or how to be a better husband or a better parent or how to make more money or how to be happier. Listen, following Jesus will make you better at life. That's a fact. But the Bible is not about efficiency, productivity, and progress and life hacks. The Bible's not about us. That's another thing the Bible's not. The Bible's not about us. And while we're at it, it's not about Russia and Ukraine, and it's not about gas prices, and it's not about who the Antichrist is going to be or any of those things. Sometimes we can get lost in the, you know, the, 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 the details of certain particulars and, and, and miss the forest from the trees, as they say. There's a lot in the Bible uh, about people who put their faith in Jesus, but it's not a book about us. And if you go to the Bible because you hope that it's a book about you, you're going to be disappointed because it's a book about God. It's a book uh, about God. And so these are things that the Bible is not. Let me tell you what the Bible is. The Bible is a collection of historical documents that was assembled by the church in 325 AD. That's what the Bible is. It wasn't found in somebody's backyard. It wasn't, it's not the result of a vision someone had on their deathbed. It is a collection of historical documents that was assembled by the leaders of the church in 325 AD. And before we get to the supernatural part, this is a good place to stop and just think about the natural part. Because what isn't debated is how we got the Bible that we have. What isn't debated is that there was the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, these leaders of the church who came together, and we'll talk about that story in a second, but they came together using the criteria that you may not agree with their criteria, but they had a criteria, and they put together the Bible. And, and you may not believe in the supernatural part, and you may not view it as a spiritual book, but historically speaking, what is not debated is that it is a collection that was decided upon in 325 AD, reconfirmed a few times, finally in 397 AD, reconfirmed a few times, but it is a collection of historical documents. And the Bible as we now know it is the same Bible that they said 1,800 years ago is the Bible. It is a collection of historical documents that we kind of see as one book, but it's not. It is a collection of books, 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is everything that was written before the life of Jesus, before Jesus was alive on the earth. That's the Old Testament. And then 27 books, that was everything uh, from the moment Jesus was born until after uh, his death, resurrection, and then uh, everything that was after that. And there's a lot more of the Old Testament than the New Testament. If you've ever started reading the Bible and doing like a Bible reading plan, and for a year, it's like September, you're still in the Old Testament, okay? Because there's a lot more of history and stories uh, and literature from the Old Testament. But the Bible is bound as one book. It's a collection of 66 books. And as Christians, where the supernatural part comes in, as Christians, maybe you're a Christian, you didn't know you believed this, but I'll tell you what you believe if you're a Christian, Okay. As Christians, we believe the words on the page of the Bible, pages of the Bible are inspired and put together by God. That yes, the leaders of the church decided together through the leading of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and intelligence and community and dialogue and debate that, that men assembled it 
but men didn't make the Bible. God gave us the Bible. It's not an accident or a coincidence or random. That it is inspired and part of the sovereign plan of God. And so when I say inspired by God, what does that mean? What do you mean inspired by God? Does that mean that, you know, uh, he, he, he gave finished documents to people? Does that mean that he moved the pen? You know, we've talked about this before. Does that mean that God, you know, moved the pen and, 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 that's, and he wrote the words? No, that's not, it's not what it means. He used people. He used languages. And, and, and inspired by God really just means three things. The three, and I've taught you this before, but I wanted to tell you again. Inspired by God means that it was written how God wanted it written. It was put together how God wanted it put together. And he has preserved it to stand the test of time. So when someone says that the Bible is inspired by God, it means that it was written how God wanted it written. It was put together how God wanted it put together. And he has preserved it to stand the test of time. You can go and read, you know, the Iliad or Odyssey or Stoicism is making a huge comeback. You can go and find the literature of them, and they have stood the test of time. That one characteristic does not make something uh, supernatural or, or, or special or spiritual. It just makes it longstanding. What makes the Bible the Bible is that we believe as Christians that it was written how God wanted it written and put together how God wanted it put together. And it was written over a period of 1,500 years. Now, when I say it was written, I don't mean they said, let's write the Bible. I mean that over a 1,500-year period of time, people were writing historical accounts of, of events that were, were happening and teachings that were taught. And God took those and he assembled them together through men, through the council, uh, for us to have for the rest of time. But the people who were writing the Bible did not know that they would be a Bible. They did not know that they were, they were writing words that would be in the Bible. No one sat down to be an author or a contributor to the Bible. They were writing letters and they were writing accounts of things. And then those letters and accounts were chosen to be included in the Bible, okay? This is very important. I want you to hear what I'm saying because this is a little bit confusing, but I want to say this, okay? Hear me. The stories in the Bible are not Bible stories. They are historical accounts of actual events. We don't have the stories because we have the Bible. We have the Bible because the stories happened, the events happened. Think of it like this. If you go to my Instagram uh, timeline or page, and you see pictures of my kids. I don't have kids because I have Instagram. I have pictures of my kids because I have kids. So what that means is if we never had a Bible, we would still have the events in history. But we don't have the events in history because we have the Bible. So just because somebody says, well, I don't believe that doesn't mean that the things didn't happen. It just means they don't believe the words and the collection that was assembled to talk about what had happened. Does that make sense? I know that's a little bit like, huh? Connecting the dots. But it's important because we now, 1,800 years later, after the Bible was assembled, we read them and hear them the first time from the Bible. And many of us were given a Bible at a church or a VBS or a kid's ministry or a parent. And they say, here, read this. And so we read them and we go, these are just great Bible stories. They are not Bible stories. They are accounts of real things that happened or Stories that were told and captured by the people who were cataloging and accounting and writing about the events. 
So when we say the Bible is God's love letter to you, I totally know what they mean, and I'm, that's cool. Go with it. That's fine, okay? But it is technically a historical collection. It's a collection of historical documents that Christians use as their religious literature. That is what we, that is what we use to learn from and to, and to guide our, our faith. And so much of archaeology and other writings from non-Christian writers from that time verify the things that happened in the Bible actually happened. And I've said this before, but I want you to hear me say it again. There has never been one archaeological discovery that has ever discredited the Bible. Not one. And I know there's like clickbait, like links to headlines and articles and, you know, documentaries and, uh, you know, like Tom Hanks movies and stuff like that. But I'm telling you, there is not one archaeological discovery that has ever discredited the Bible. They've never found anything and go, see, because we found this, that proves the Bible's not true. And so what you discover when you begin to try to find historical proof of the Bible's inaccuracy is that the more they discover, the more that they confirm the authenticity of the Bible. So that's the first question. What is the Bible? The Bible is a collection of historical documents that was agreed upon and assembled around 325 A.D. Okay? It's the words of God inspired by God. But the second question is, how did we get the Bible? How did we get the Bible? We've talked about this already just a little bit, but I want to kind of take you into the room a little bit and show you how we got this. In A.D. 397, the Bible, as we know, it was finalized. So they started in 325. There's different councils along the way. 325, they make decisions. But then along the way, finally in 397, it is confirmed. The collection of 66 books that we have that is the Bible and has been considered the Bible for the last 1,800 years. Now, there were other letters and accounts written besides the books that we have in the Bible, they are, but they are not considered Scripture because early church leaders did not consider them to be inspired by God, to which a skeptic would say, well, that's convenient. They just got to decide? Well, they weren't just going on a whim. We're going to talk about that in a second. But I want to point out to you that there are all kinds of literature that can be considered helpful but is not considered to be holy. And for the council uh, that were gathered together, the different councils that were gathered together, they would look at the other historical, uh, historical accounts and other letters that were written, and they may have concluded that's helpful. But these 66 books, they concluded, are the holy scripture. So over the course of 300 years, they wrestled with which letters were scriptures and which were not. And they used three rules to finally determine which books made it in and which ones, which ones were left out, okay? Three rules. I'm going to give them to you. How come these books made it in and how come those books did not? There were three rules that the councils used. The first rule is that it had to be written by a prophet or apostle by someone who had a special, or someone who had a special relationship with a prophet or an apostle, okay? So you didn't get to, like, to send one in. You didn't get to, like, line up and audition, you know? Like, you had to be an apostle, or a prophet, or have a special relationship with a prophet or an apostle. So if there was a letter, you know, written by Bobby, and Bobby don't make it in, okay? Because everybody's like, does anybody know Bobby? Was Bobby a prophet? Does anybody know about Bobby? He's like, nobody's like, I've never heard of Bobby. Bobby's out. 
It says, anybody heard of, you know, Isaiah? Like, I've heard of Isaiah, yeah. We know Isaiah. Oh, we know Paul. Oh, we know Peter. Oh, we know James. Oh, we know. Okay, well, they get in. Bobby's out. They're in, okay? Second rule is that they had to be an eyewitness to the events or had recorded eyewitness testimonies. This is specifically to the New Testament. This was not a game of telephone or hearsay. All of the documents that we have that is considered the Bible were finalized, written, collected in the first century, okay? And so they either had to be an eyewitness, like I was there, or they had to have the words of the eyewitness, not the words of the words of the words who was with the eyewitness, but the words. So a great example of this, we talked about this last week, is Luke. Luke was not a disciple, an apostle, okay? But he was close to them. He was a smart man who did research and got the words of the eyewitnesses. And so if the, as these people got together to make this decision, they would say, okay, where did so-and-so get his information? And so-and-so says, oh, they were there. They were one of the disciples. Oh, that's, you know, John. John was there. He was a disciple. Or that was Luke who was with Peter and has all of the information. So it's not hearsay. It's not I heard somebody said who said. It's eyewitness account. And then the third rule is there had to be agreement based on the leading of the Holy Spirit among everyone making the decision. So if somebody didn't feel right about it, it didn't make it in. And this is obviously where a little bit of the human element comes in if you want to poke holes in it or critique it or say politics or say, you know, were they all white? Were they all male? Like, obviously, this is where you can poke some holes in it. You don't have to agree the criteria, but there were criteria that were used. That it had to be written by a prophet or an apostle, an eyewitness or somebody with eyewitness words. And, and, and collectively, the community of people who were making the decision had to agree with it. And I know a lot of you grew up Catholic, and so you're thinking, you know, what about the books in the Catholic Bible, like the Maccabees and stuff? And this is known as the Apocrypha, and maybe you learned this growing up. I did not grow up Catholic, so I, I would not... I can't claim to know a ton about the Apocrypha, but I can tell you that the reason that those books were left out of the Bible and, and maybe considered helpful, even though maybe not entirely helpful, but definitely not Holy Scripture, is because Jesus nor any disciple ever made reference to it. This was the biggest criteria. So if you read through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus say, you know, just as Jonah was in the belly of a well for three days, so will I be in the heart of the earth. Well, he's referencing Jonah. Right? Or you have heard it said, da 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 da. Well, he's referencing Deuteronomy and Leviticus and things like that. And so, no disciple in any letter written that they wrote or any teaching of Jesus ever referenced anything that was written in the books of the Apocrypha. Doesn't mean they're fake books, doesn't mean they weren't really written or anything like that. It just means that when the council together, they decided that these were not authoritative. Because Jesus, who is God, or the apostles, never made any reference to it, okay? So as Christians, we believe that the Bible is inspired by God, that nothing was left out, nothing was made. There are things in there that are fictional, but if fictional, they are fictional on purpose for a reason. And that its message has changed from the beginning. And even when different translations are created, you ready to go? I'm going to give the information to your grandmother-in-law, all right? Even when different translations have been created or, 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 or have come out, they have translated for the original Hebrew that were written in. We don't have modern Bibles that were made because somebody's like, 
Uh, I think they should switch that around. They read English and then change it in, in English. Even the message written by Jean Peter Searson that gets a lot of hate from people, not city, but, but different people, was, was translated from the original Greek and, and the Hebrew. Really, 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 really smart people who commit years of their life and some Bible translated word by word and some Bibles are translated phrase by phrase or some are translated idea by idea, but those are not considered as credible as the other ones. But they still come from the Greek and the Hebrew original language that they were written in. So Bobby doesn't get to say, eh, well, you know, I mean, let's, uh, let's cut that and then move that around and let's change that and let's do that, right? That it's translated from... The original, uh, the original language. So everybody hear me. As Christians, we believe we have the Bible God wanted us to have so we can know what he wants us to know. But that also means that there are things that we want to know that we don't get to know because it's not in there. But we have the Bible God wants us to have so he can know what he wants us to know. So that's the second question. How did we get it? Okay. But up until this point, there's not really anything I've said that is, is widely debated. I mean, there's debates. There are people who would debate anything. There's, it's not really widely debated that the Bible is a collection of historical documents. It's not really widely debated that the, these councils are the ones who came together and used this criteria in order to put together books. That's not really heavily debated. And that's not really why people struggle to believe the Bible. It's really the third question that all of us are like, and the third question is, why do we believe it's true? Why do we believe that the Bible is true? And, and, and if someone came up to me today and said, Jason, why do you believe the Bible is true? I really would tell them two things, one more helpful than the other. The first thing I would tell them is I would ask them to read it. I would ask them to read it. If someone came to me and said, why do I ask me why I believe the Bible is true I would ask them to read it, and I would offer to read it with them. And I've heard of other people doing this, but I think it's such a great idea that if somebody came to me and said, hey, I don't believe the Bible is true because I believe the Quran is true, or I don't believe the Bible is true because, and, and named other religious literature, I would be willing to say, let's read your literature for 90 days, and then let's read my literature for 90 days. I'd be willing to do that because I believe in the power of the Scriptures. doesn't mean that other Literature is not helpful. We believe in the power of the Holy Scriptures. And at the end of 90 days, after reading the teachings and the words of Jesus, and after reading about the events of the church, if somebody said to me after 90 days, that's crap, then that's fine. That's okay. I don't have to be defensive. I don't have to feel as if it's my responsibility to convince them. But they gave it a chance, and they said, I've read the words of Jesus and the church, but I've seen it happen. I've experienced it myself. Something supernatural happens when you begin to read the words of Scripture. I believe that. And so that's the first thing I would say. And I think that's a great thing for you to say, too, by the way. If somebody came to you and said, I don't know, don't just tell them to read it. Tell them you'll read it with them. Find a time and a place and read about Jesus. You don't have to be insecure that you can't answer all their questions or anything like that. Just read it with them. Because the word of God is powerful and it's active. It's moving, right? But the second thing, if somebody said to me, Jason, why do you, why do you believe the Bible is true? The second thing that I would say, which would probably annoy them, 
is I believe the Bible because it's believable. I believe the Bible because it's believable. There are too many facts connecting accounts in the Bible to world history. There are too many archaeological discoveries that confirm the accuracy of its claims. And I know there are some things in the Bible that seem hard to believe, and I'll give you that. And I've admitted some of those to you. And that is where faith comes into play in some of those instances. But as a whole document, from cover to cover, it's believable. And it is at least more believable than any other religious document out there. So if you come to me and you say, I don't believe the Bible because I think all religion's garbage. Okay, no problem. But if you come to me and you say, I don't believe the Bible, but I believe this other thing. My question to you would be, based on what? What criteria are you using for that that the Bible does not measure up to? There's just too much evidence. And for me, as I begin to see and go back and try to study and read about the beginning origins of the Bible... I felt, I felt as if, and I don't want to discount or discredit anyone's experience, but I felt as if it would take more faith for me to push it away than it would for me to believe it and wrestle with the parts that I'm unsure of. Because for me, I, I could not say because of the parts that I, I'm unsure of, I'm going to discredit the whole thing. For me, it, it, that took more faith. For me, it was, it, was, it was more reasonable and more acceptable to say I believe it's true and authoritative and I'll wrestle with the parts that I'm unsure of. 1,800 years ago, Christians decided to give authority to the Bible. It was a choice. It was a choice. They decided to give authority to the Bible as the religious literature of Christianity and that the Bible would define what Christianity is and isn't and who Jesus is and who Jesus isn't and what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is bad. And that single decision was not made lightly because that single decision, after it was made by the leaders of the church, and then it was accepted by the Christians of the church and the members of the church, that single decision to give authority to the Bible has cost millions of people their life. Millions. Millions. For 1,800 years... There have been millions of people in countries all over the world who are at the point of death. And all they would have to do is to recant their faith or hand over their copy of their Bible. And they chose to die and be killed instead of that. And I know that that's emotional and I'm not in any way trying to emotionally manipulate you. But I do want you to consider for a second What would cause millions of people to choose death over handing over their Bible 
or recanting their faith. As you go back and you learn uh, how the Bible, how he led up to that first council meeting in 327 through 25, it's really a pretty remarkable story. It's really about the reign of an emperor named Diocletian. You can go, this is not a Bible story, this is a history lesson, and you can go and, and find accounts for Emperor Diocletian. But he was a Roman emperor between 284 and 304 AD, and Diocletian hated Christians. Because what had happened over the last two or 300 years is that Christianity was growing. It had no political power. It had no uh, political representation. It started as a few hundred people and then grew into a few thousand people. And in the houses and the alleys and the way that they were taking in babies on the street and in the way that they were viewing women and empowering women and the way that their sexual, sexual ethic was different than the Roman Empire and the Roman government and the way that people were watching the joy that they had and watching the peace that they had and the families that they had in their living rooms and dining room tables, this little sect of people begin growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And a Roman emperor, Diocletian, was threatened and he decided that he wanted to destroy Christians and he wanted to rid the Roman Empire of Christianity. And so he began to try and do that. And he said, we're going to kill all the bishops. And he said, we're going to break into all the Christian gatherings and we're going to kill them. And so that's what they began to do. But they, even through all of that, and it was a large effort, they couldn't destroy Christianity. And Diocletian came to the conclusion that the reason he could not destroy Christianity is because he had not destroyed their literature. Because see, in this time, pagan religion didn't have literature. You would go to a, you know, a god or a statue or a little thing you had cut out in your house. It was incredibly superstitious and vile. But there was no literature. There was no manuals. There was no doctrines. There was no history. It was just something that you did because it was passed to you in some way. But not Christians. See, Christians had literature. Because for the last 300 years, uh, in the first in the first few years, uh, you know, 50 years or so after Jesus' death, men took it upon themselves to write down the words and the accounts of what had happened. And they already had the Old Testament literature, but now they had the account and the biography of a man named Jesus and the history of the church. And so those authors carried them with them and then they were meticulously copied and they were passed around to the different churches and the different countries and the different communities that this Christian movement was growing in. So no matter what they tried to do to the church, they couldn't kill the church because the church had literature. And so what Diocletian decided to do is he decided to destroy the Christian literature. He took it upon himself to destroy it, but Christians risked their lives to protect it. Emperor Diocletian was unsuccessful in his attempt to rid the Roman Empire of Christianity and Christian literature. But after Diocletian died, a new emperor came to power, and his name was Constantine. And depending on the stories that you believe about Constantine or the historical references, what is kind of generally accepted is that Constantine's mom was a Christian. Don't ever underestimate the power of a praying mother. Because in some way, God was working 
And there was an emperor who was coming to power who had put her, uh, had a mother who had put her faith in Jesus Christ. And depending on what you believe, Constantine had a vision before a battle and he saw a cross in this vision. And Constantine became a Christian, put his faith in Jesus Christ and made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire, which was really good and then bad in some other ways, but really good at this time because now at least you didn't die for it. And so Constantine gave permission to the Christians to come out of the shadows. And that's what they did. They came out of the shadows. And when they did, they brought their literature with them. They brought their literature. And so the church from over here would bring what they had. And the church from over here would bring the letters that they had. And the church from over here would bring what they had been able to preserve in the face of, uh, of violence and threats. And, and so all of these Christians begin to come out of the shadows and they begin to bring their literature. And about 15 years later, the first council of Nicaea gathers together. And they bring together all this literature that Diocletian had tried to destroy, but Constantine had allowed them to bring out into the open. And they bring it all together, and they say, what do you got? And they say, what do you got? And what do you got? They bring it all together. they got thousands of documents. And they begin to debate and verify and debate and verify and debate and verify, and they make a decision. They put together the Bible. But then another council is assembled about 25 years later, and they look at what the first council of Nicaea decided, and they debate and verify and debate and verify. And then another council. But then in 397 AD, the last council that we have that reaffirmed and confirmed the Scriptures, the Council of Carthage. And so now not only had there been 300 years of Christian living and Christian documentation, but there had now been 70 years of debate and dialogue and debate and dialogue and debate and dialogue. And so as you begin to think about the Bible, we don't think about the Bible as like a collection of fortune cookies. We don't think about the Bible as life advice. It's important to see the Bible as what it is for the Christian. And I'm going to show you this image, and then we're going, to, we're going to finish this sermon. But as you think about the Bible, I want you to be able to see it in context of what it is. That we don't worship this book. And as, as sacrilegious as this sounds, we are not Christians because we have this book. Now, without this book, it would be really hard to find and, and, and put our faith in Jesus Christ. But the, the Bible is the last piece of what happened as a part of the Christian orthodoxy that we have. Because, see, Christianity is based on an event, the life and the death and the resurrection of a man named Jesus, who was a real human being who claimed to be God. We talked about that last week. And then Jesus' death and resurrection created a movement. It's like a hundred and some of them in a room. It turned into a few thousand. And this movement began to spread and spread and spread. And then this movement had documentation, had literature. And all of this happened in the first century. And then 300 years later, this movement took that documentation and decided that this was the Holy Scriptures. We don't just blindly follow it because our mom told us to. 
And we don't just blindly follow it because we're American citizen. We follow it as Christians because we look at how it was made and created and we read and we experience it and we make the choice to say, I give the Bible authority to define what Christianity is and isn't and what right and wrong is and isn't and who Jesus is and isn't and what is good and what is bad. But in the scripture that we read today, Alex read a, a several scriptures to us, but I want to just point out one thing as we close, and it's in verse 14. This is what the Apostle Paul said. In verse 14, the Apostle Paul said, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. He doesn't say, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you went to VBS. No, no shade of VBS, come on. He doesn't say, continue in what you've become convinced of because you had a cool youth pastor or because your dad was a pastor or because you watch a certain news channel or because you, what? No, he doesn't say that. He says, I want you to continue in what you've learned and are becoming convinced of because you know people that you've learned it from. Paul's advice to you if you want to really come to love and cherish and believe in the Bible is not to go in your room by yourself and read it cover to cover, which would be awesome if you want to do that. But Paul says the best way to believe the Bible is true. It's to find somebody who believes it and get to know them. And so my question to you is, have you ever met someone who really believed the Bible? Not just because they are white or American or no, but because they believed it, they read it, and they became convinced of it, so convinced of it that they decided they would base their entire life on it. Have you ever met somebody that really believes the Bible? And they parent their kids based on the Bible. And they base their marriage on the Bible. And they manage their money based on the Bible. And they treat people a certain way because of the Bible. I'm going to make you a bet. If you meet somebody like that, and you spend time with somebody like that, you will believe it's true. But not because you check the toxins levels of the papyrus. But because you know someone who really believes it. And so I think, this is just my theory, I think anybody in the room today who struggles to believe the Bible if we really were to get down to it, it would be because you met somebody that you thought believed it, and as you got to know them, you realized they didn't really believe it. And so if you're here and your parents claim to be Christians but did something awful to you or a pastor hurt you or a church hurt you, I want you to know I understand that those things have a profound effect on the way you view God and the way you view Christians and the way you view the church and the way you view the Bible. But if you will find somebody who really believes it 
and lives their life based on it, you'll come to believe it too. And you'll become more and more and more convinced. So we're going to end today by reciting a psalm together. Kaylee and the team are going to come. They're going to lead us in another song, a couple songs, and have an opportunity to take communion together. But I want us to recite Psalm 119 together. We're going to start, not the whole thing, but we're going to start with verse 105. It's a long one. We're going to start with 105, and we're going to go to 112. One of the more famous sections of the psalm about the power of the word of God. And I don't know, I, I just, as I was thinking about ending this message, I just, I just thought it would be cool to, to come together and recite these words because the Christians have been reciting the words of the Psalms for thousands of years. And we have this collective literature together that we're sitting here now, I mean, in the case of the Psalms, 2,500 years-ish later. And we're using the same literature that they were. And they would have gotten together and recited this. And I thought, well, hey, why don't we get together and recite this? So it's a little bit lengthy, and I'm sure we're going to get off on our rhythms. That's okay, all right? We're going to do it together. So let's start in Psalm 119, 105, and let's say these words together. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. I've promised it once, and I'll promise it again. I will obey your righteous regulations. I have suffered much, O oh Lord. Restore my life again as you promised. Lord, accept my offering of praise and teach me your regulations. My life constantly hangs in the balance, but I will not stop obeying your The wicked have set their traps for me, but I will not turn from your commandments. Your laws are my treasure. They are my heart's delight. I am determined to keep your decrees to the very end. Let's pray.